0: Book Sixteen, Part Two, of The Annals, by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals of Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodribb, Book Sixteen, A.D. Sixty-Five and Sixty-Six, Part Two. Nero despises Thrasia Pitus for his virtue. Nero, after having butchered so many illustrious men, at last aspired to extirpate virtue itself by murdering Thrasia Pitus and Bariasuranus, both men he had hated of old. Thracia on additional grounds, because he had walked out of the senate when Acrobina's case was under discussion, as I have already related, and had not given the juvenile games any conspicuous encouragement. Nero's displeasure at this was the deeper, since this same Thrasia had sung in a tragedian's dress at Petavium, his birthplace, and in some games instituted by the Trojan Antenor. On the day, too, on which the praetor Antisius was being sentenced to death for libels on Nero, Thrasia proposed and carried a more merciful decision. Again, when divine honors were decreed to Popeia, he was purposely absent and did not attend her funeral. All this Capito Cusutianus would not allow to be forgotten. He had a heart eager for the worst wickedness, and he also bore ill will to Thracia, the weight of whose influence had crushed him, while envoys from Cilicia, supported by Thracia's advocacy, were accusing him of extortion. He alleged, too, against him the following charges. Thrasia, he said, at the beginning of the year always avoided the usual oath of allegiance. He was not present at the recital of the public prayers, though he had been promoted to the priesthood of the fifteen. He had never offered a sacrifice for the safety of the prince or his heavenly voice. Though formerly he had been assiduous and unwearied in showing himself a supporter, or an opponent even, of the most ordinary motions of the senators, he had not entered the senate house for three years, and very lately, when all were rushing thither with rival eagerness to put down Salanus and Vetus, he had attended by preference to the private businesses of his clients. This was political schism, and they should not dare to do the like. It was actual war. Capito further added, The country, in its eagerness for discord, is now talking of you, Nero, and of Thracia, as it talked once of Gaius Caesar and Marcus Cato. Thrasio has his followers, or rather his satellites, who copy, not indeed, as yet the audacious tone of his sentiments, but only his manners and his looks, a sour and gloomy set, bent on making your mirthfulness a reproach to you. He is the only man who cares not for your safety, honors not your accomplishments. The prince's prosperity he despises. Can it be that he is not satisfied with your sorrows and griefs? It shows the same spirit not to believe in Popeye's divinity, as to refuse to swear obedience to the acts of the divine Augustus and the divine Julius. He contemns religious rites. He annuls laws. The daily records of the Roman people are read attentively in the provinces and the armies that they may know what Thracia has not done. Either let us go over to a system, if it is better than ours, or let those who desire change have their leader and adviser taken from them. That sect of his gave birth to the Tuberones and the Favonii, Names hateful even to the old republic. They make a show of freedom to overturn the empire. Should they destroy it, they will attack freedom itself. In vain have you banished Cassius, if you are going to allow rivals of the Bruti to multiply and flourish. Finally, write nothing yourself about Thracia. Leave the senate to decide for us. Nero further stimulated the eager wrath of Custunianus and associated with him the pungent eloquence of Marcellus Epirus. As for the impeachment of Baraeus Soranus, Astoria Subinus, a Roman knight, had already claimed it for himself. It arose out of his proconsulate of Asia, where he increased the prince's animosity by his uprightness and diligence, as well as having bestowed pains on opening the port of Ephesus, and passed over without punishment the violence of the citizens of Pergamos, in their efforts to hinder Acritus, one of the emperor's freedmen, from carrying off statues and pictures but the crime imputed to him was friendship with Plautus, and intrigues to lure the province into thoughts of revolt. The time chosen for the fatal sentence was that at which Tiridates was on his way to receive the sovereignty of Armenia, so that the crime at home might be partially veiled amid rumors on foreign affairs, or that Nero might display his imperial grandeur by the murder of illustrious men, as though it were a kingly exploit. Accordingly, when all Rome rushed out to welcome the emperor and see the king, Thracia, though forbidden to appear, did not let his spirit be cast down, but wrote a note to Nero, in which he demanded to know the charges against him, and asserted that he would clear himself, if he were informed of the crimes alleged, and had an opportunity of refuting them. This note Nero received with eagerness, in the hope that Thracia, in dismay, had written something to enhance the emperor's glory, and to tarnish his own honor. When it turned out otherwise, and he himself, on the contrary, dreaded the glance and the defiant independence of the guiltless man, he ordered the Senate to be summoned. Thracia then consulted his most intimate friends whether he should attempt or spurn defense. Conflicting advice was offered. Those who thought it best for him to enter the Senate House said that they counted confidently on his courage, and were sure that he would say nothing but what would heighten his renown. It was for the feeble and timid to invest their last moments with secrecy. Let the people behold a man who can meet death. Let the Senate hear words almost of divine inspiration, more than human. It was possible that the very miracle might impress even a Nero, but should he persist in his cruelty, posterity would at least distinguish between the memory of an honorable death and the cowardice of those who perished in silence. Those, on the other hand, who thought that he ought to wait at home though their opinion of him was the same, hinted that mockeries and insults were in store for him. "'Spare your ears,' they said. Taunts and revilings. Not only are Cositianus and Epirus eagerly bent on crime, there are numbers more daring enough, perchance, to raise the hand of violence in their brutality. Even good men through fear do the like. Better save the Senate, which you have adorned to the last, the infamy of such an outrage, and leave it, a matter of doubt, what the senators would have decided, had they seen Thracia on his trial. It is with a vain hope we are aiming to touch Nero with the shame of his abominations. We have far more cause to fear that he will vent his fury on your wife, your household, on all others dear to you. And therefore, while you are yet stainless and undisgraced, seek to close life with the glory of those in whose track and pursuits you have passed it. Present at this deliberation was Rusticus aurelianus An enthusiastic youth, who, in his ardour for renown, offered, as he was tribune of the people, to protest against the sentence of the senate. Thracia checked his impetuous temper, not wishing him to attempt what would be as futile and useless to the accused as it would be fatal to the protester. My days, he said, are ended, and I must not now abandon a scheme of life in which for so many years I have persevered. You are at the beginning of a career of office, and your future is not yet clear. Weigh thoroughly with yourself beforehand, at such a crisis as this, the path of political life on which you enter. He then reserved for his own consideration the question whether it became him to enter the Senate. The next day, however, two Praetorian guards under arms occupied the temple of Venus Genetrix, a group of ordinary citizens with swords which they did not conceal had blocked the approach to the Senate. Through the squares and colonnades were scattered bodies of soldiers, amid whose looks of menace the senators entered their house. A speech from the emperor was read by his quaestor. Without addressing anyone by name, he censured the senators for neglecting their public duties, and drawing by their example the Roman knights into idleness. For what wonder is it, he asked, that men do not come from remote provinces when many, After obtaining the consulate or some sacred office, give all their thoughts by choice to the beauty of their gardens. Here was, so to say, a weapon for the accusers on which they fastened. Cosutianus made a beginning, and then Marcellus, in more violent tones, exclaimed, that the whole commonwealth was at stake. It is, he said, the stubbornness of inferiors which lessens the clemency of our ruler. We senators have hitherto been too lenient in allowing him to be mocked with impunity by Thracia, throwing off allegiance, by his son-in-law, Helvidius Priscus, indulging similar frenzies, by Peconius Agrippinus, the inheritor of his father's hatred towards emperors, and by Curtius Montanus, the habitual composer of abominable verses. I miss the presence of an ex-consul in the Senate, of a priest when we offer our vows, of a citizen when we swear obedience, unless, indeed, in defiance to the manners and rights of our ancestors, Thrasia has openly assumed the part of a traitor and an enemy. In a word, let the man want to act the senator, and to screen those who disparage the prince, come among us. Let him propose any reform or change he may desire. We shall more readily endure his censure of details than we can now bear the silence by which he condemns everything." Is it the peace throughout the world, or victories won without loss to our armies which vex him? A man who grieves at the country's prosperity, who treats our public places, theaters, and temples, as if they were a desert, and who is ever threatening us with exile, let us not enable such a one to gratify his perverse vanity. To him the decrees of this house, the offices of state, the city of Rome, seem as nothing. Let him sever his life from a country— all love for which he has long lost, and the very sight of which he is now put from him. While Marcellus, with the savage and menacing look he usually wore, spoke these and like words with rising fury in his voice, countenance, and eye, that familiar grief, to which a thick succession of perils had habituated the Senate, gave way to a new and profounder panic, as they saw the soldiers' hands on their weapons. At the same moment, the venerable form of Thrasia rose before their imagination, and some there, who had pitied Helvidius too, doomed as he was to suffer for an innocent alliance. What again, they asked, was the charge against Agrippinus, except his father's sad fate, since he too, though guiltless as his son, fell beneath the cruelty of Tiberius? As for Montanus, a youth without blemish, author of no libelous poem, he was positively driven out in exile because he had exhibited genius. And meanwhile, Austorius Sobinus, the accuser of Serranus, entered, and began by speaking of his friendship with Rubilius Plautus, and of his proconsulate in Asia, which he had, he said, adapted to his own glory rather than to the public welfare, by fostering seditious movements in the various states. These were bygones, but there was a fresh charge involving the daughter in the peril of the father, to the effect that she had lavished money on astrologers. This, indeed, had really occurred, through the filial affection of Servilia, that was the girl's name, who, out of love for her father and the thoughtlessness of youth, had consulted them, only, however, about the safety of her family, whether Nero could be appeased, and the trial before the senate have no dreadful result. She was accordingly summoned before the senate, And there they stood facing one another before the consul's tribunal, the aged parent, and opposite to him the daughter, in the twentieth year of her age, widowed and forlorn, her husband, Aeneas Polio, having lately been driven into banishment, without so much as a glance at her father, whose peril she seemed to have aggravated. Then, on the accuser asking her whether she had sold her bridal presents, or stripped her neck of its ornaments to raise money for the performance of magical rites, She at first flung herself on the ground, and wept long in silence. After a while, clasping the altar steps and altar, she exclaimed, I have invoked no impious deities, no enchantments, nor aught else in my unhappy prayers, but only that thou, Caesar, and you, senators, might preserve, unharmed this best of fathers. My jewels, my apparel, and the signs of my rank I gave up, as I would have given up my life-blood had they demanded it. They must have seen this, those men before unknown to me, both as the name they bear and the arts they practice. No mention was made by me of the emperor, except as one of the divinities. But my most unhappy father knows nothing, and, if it is a crime, I alone am guilty. While she was yet speaking, Soranus caught up her words, and exclaimed that she had not gone with him into the province, that, from her youth, she could not have been known to Plautus, and that she was not involved in the charges against her husband. Treat separately, he said, the case of one who is guilty only of an exaggerated filial piety, and as for myself, let me undergo any fate. He was rushing, as he spoke, into the embraces of his daughter, who hurried towards him, but the lictors interposed and stopped them both. Place was then given to the witnesses, and the appearance among them of Publius Ignatius, provoked as much indignation as the cruelty of the prosecution had excited pity. A client of Serranus, and now hired to ruin his friend, he professed the dignified character of a Stoic, and had trained himself in demeanor and language to exhibit an ideal of virtue. In his heart, however, treacherous and cunning, he concealed greed and sensuality. As soon as money had brought those vices to light, he became an example, warning us to beware just as much those who, under the guise of virtuous taste, are false and deceitful in friendship, as of men wholly entangled in falsehoods, and stained with every infamy. That same day brought with it a noble pattern in Cassius Asclepiodotus, whose vast wealth made him the foremost man in Bithynia. He had honored Seranus in his prosperity with respect, which he did not cast off in his fall, and he was now stripped of all his property and driven into exile. So impartially indifferent is heaven to examples of virtue and vice. Thrasia, Soranus, and Servilia were allowed the choice of death. Helvidius and Peconius were banished from Italy. Montanus was spared by his father's intercessions on the understanding that he was not to be admitted to political life. The prosecutors, Epirus and Cosutianus, received each five million sesterces. Ostorius, twelve hundred thousand, with the decorations of the quaestorship. Then, as evening approached, the consul's quaestor was sent to Thracia, who was passing his time in his garden. He had had a crowded gathering of distinguished men and women, giving special attention to Demetrius, a professor of the Cynic philosophy. With him, as might be inferred from his earnest expression of the face, and from words heard when they raised their voices, he was speculating on the nature of the soul, and the separation of the spirit from the body, till Domitius Caecilianus, one of his intimate friends, came to him and told him in detail what the senate had decided. When all who were present wept and bitterly complained, Thracia urged them to hasten their departure and not to mingle their own perils with the fate of a doomed man. Aria, too, who aspired to follow her husband's end and the example of Aria, her mother, he counseled to preserve her life and not rob the daughter of their love, of her only stay. Then, as he went into a colonnade, where he was found by the quaestor, joyful rather than otherwise, as he had learnt that Helvidius, his son-in-law, was merely excluded from Italy. When he heard the senate's decision, he led Helvidius and Demetrius into a chamber, and having laid bare the arteries of each arm, he let the blood flow freely, and he sprinkled it on the ground. He called the quaestor to his side and said, We pour out a libation to Jupiter the Deliverer. Behold, young man, and may the gods avert the omen. But you have been born into times in which it is well to fortify this spirit with examples of courage. Then, as the slowness of his end brought with it grievous anguish, turning his eyes on Demetrius, at this point the annals are broken off. Much remained... To be told about the last two years of Nero's reign. End of book 16. End of Tacitus' Annals. Volume 2.